All right, if you've got a Bible with you, um, turn in it to the book of Colossians. This is a tiny one in the New Testament. If you go all the way to the right and start working left, you'll find it. It's in all the other ones that end with Ian's. Um, If you've been around lately, you know that for the last few months, we have been in a part of the Bible called the Gospel of Luke. And we've been in a particular portion of that gospel where we learn about and kind of observe through the retelling of these stories, the power and preaching of Jesus. Well, as we turn to Colossians, I think what we'll find here is that Colossians is a distinctive book in the New Testament in that it summarizes for us who Christ is. It takes what we've observed in the Gospel of Luke and it crystallizes it for us. And that it helps us understand as Christians in the church what it means to live like these things are true. What it means for us to have new life in him. And so Colossians shows us that when we first come to Jesus... This Jesus that we've seen and maybe some of you have been introduced to over the course of the last couple of months. When we come to him, he meets us right where we are. We've seen that of Christ over and over again in Luke as he comes to the outcast and uh, so many others that uh, the society of his time wanted to cast aside. And he meets them right where they are. But Colossians will also show us that Christ does not leave us where we are. He begins a renovation of our entire lives because the same loving mercy that drove Christ to save us also drives him to transform us from the inside out. Christians are united with Christ and then in our union with him, we strive to live the Christian life with him as the center of all we do. And so the purpose statement of Colossians might come to us In chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So that's our aim for the next few months as we study this book together, that we would afresh see who it is that we have received in Christ as Lord, and so that we would increasingly, individually and collectively, that we would walk in him. Now, Uh, uh, Bear with me one more um, kind of prefatory note before we dive into Colossians. Since we're turning from a portion of the Bible that's about Jesus in a particular way and showing us something of the life of Jesus, and now turning to a letter written by the Apostle Paul, I want to talk just a moment about the relationship between Jesus and Paul. Various teachers over the centuries have tried in various ways to sort of pit the teachings of Jesus and Paul against one another. Uh, It started as far back uh, as the Marcionite heresy in the second century, but it gets repackaged and kind of dressed up in different clothes and represented over and over again, I think, in every generation. Um, Just last month, uh, a theologian in New York Uh, went viral on TikTok uh, with a five-minute video uh, where he made these very claims. And so apparently an interest in this is 
is still alive and well. And in fact, um, you may not have even been aware of this, but usually every year, it always seems about it be around Easter time for some reason, right? When Christians are celebrating the, uh, the faith and the resurrection, a publication like Time Magazine will come up with an article about Jesus and how we really need to ditch the Christianity of Paul and follow the Christianity of Jesus. Uh, this kind of thing underpins um, the, the perspective of uh, the PBS specials that pop up, for example, about Jesus uh, every now and then. If you're a college student, you're going to encounter this in a world religion class or an English literature class. Um, and the argument today generally goes something like this. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom which was a gospel that proclaimed that God was doing a kind of new thing in the world and he was calling people to live in a new way in the world and that way is marked by love. And then they would say Paul, on the other hand, preached a different gospel. His gospel was all about how people can gain a good standing with a God who judges sin. And they would claim that, you know, Paul and Jesus never, never met. Paul had never heard Jesus teach. Um, they had different interests in, in preaching. And so that's why they'll set Paul against not only Jesus, but people who definitely knew him, like Peter and, and James. Um, and so they say Paul and Jesus' teachings come into conflict with each other. And so they conclude, if in doubt, when Paul and Jesus conflict, let's go with Jesus. So it says. And often what they want us to go with when they say go with Jesus are the moral teachings of Jesus about this kingdom of God. Now, as you can imagine, uh, I think there are all kinds of problems with this. One being that the morality being taught by Jesus that they say we should follow all over Paul usually tends to sound exactly like the morals of the individuals making that claim even when those individuals uh, are very different and represent different moral standards over the course of the centuries, they tend to present to us a Jesus made in their own image. But Jesus, of course, um, is not just uh, some broadly spiritual figure like Gandhi or Buddha, this sort of moral teacher made in the image of the ethical standards of a particular group at a particular time. Jesus doesn't exist to be leveraged for the behavioral interests of a particular society. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus comes to us as both Savior and, yes, King, but the King of a kingdom where Jesus himself sets the standards, standards that are absolutely good, but often at odds with the world he came to save. Now, the church has rejected this kind of Paul versus Jesus view every time it's appeared, uh, again, for a number of reasons. One thing is that it goes against what Jesus himself teaches. Jesus in the Gospels repeatedly claims to be far more than a moral guide. He claims to be Lord of all, and he tells his disciples that he will be crucified and risen, not simply to demonstrate sacrificial love, although it certainly does that, but to redeem sinners. The church has also rejected this for some practical reasons, like Paul did meet Jesus. Uh, if you've read the book of Acts, you're aware of the experience Paul has with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. 
Paul was definitely familiar with the teachings of Jesus. He quotes it, uh, quotes him throughout his writings. Uh, he knew it so well that in his, the early part of his life, spent much of his life trying to refute it before he encountered Christ on the road. But really, lastly and most importantly, the church has rejected this around the world and through the ages because the church teaches that the Bible was written, yes, by many human authors, but that those authors all wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So while there are many human authors, there is one divine author. There are therefore no internal contradictions in Scripture. There may be times when people think there are, but those times reveal a lack of understanding on our part, not a lack of integrity on God's part. The Bible is a coherent whole. So we are proceeding with that underlying conviction, not missing a beat, going from the Gospel of Luke to the letter of Colossians. Now, I'm not going to belabor this anymore here, but if some of you have had this kind of stuck in your crawl for a little while, so to speak, and you've been wrestling with this dynamic, I'm going to jump back to the community room right after the service, and I'd be happy to talk with you more about this. But now let's dive into the book of Colossians. I want to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, what is God doing? Ever had anybody ask you that question? What's he doing in my life? What's he doing in the lives of the people around me? People have sometimes asked me that question, and I'll be honest with you guys. Um, I struggle with it sometimes. I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with this question. Um, sometimes it can feel like I need to sort of conjure up a subjective spiritual interpretation of events in my life that I just don't have. Um, God does not promise us that he will interpret our circumstances as they're happening. Uh, so if I'm asked that question in the midst of a time of trial, I, I often want to say, well, God's doing a lot. You know, he's holding the universe by the word of his power. Um, he's uh, listening to my prayers. He's doing these things he's always doing. Because God is always at work, even if I can't see exactly how. And so in the midst of trials, I think it's often better to ask, what has God done rather than what he's doing? Remembering God's faithfulness in the past helps me trust him in the present, even when his hand in my life currently is shrouded in mystery. 
But that said, there is another way uh, to think about that question that I think is very, very helpful. That is to think of it a bit more objectively. For us to ask ourselves and others, what is actually happening in my life right here, right now, that is a clear demonstration of the work of God? Well, Paul begins this letter by expounding what he perceives to be the work of God in the Colossian church. I think it's an invitation for us to do the same. And Paul is a good writer. He listened well to his elementary English teacher. Uh, he sees what God's doing and he, he writes thoroughly answering questions like who, what, where, when, why, and how, right? Did I get them all, teachers? I think so. This opening has three sections. It's got a greeting in verses 1 to 2, a thanksgiving in verses 3 to the first part of 5, and then some reasoning in the second half of 5 through verses 8. And in the greeting, Paul answers the question, who and where does he see God working? And in the thanksgiving part, he tells us what, what he sees God doing. And in the reasoning part, he explains how and why it's happening. So let's look at it with those headings in mind. First up, the greeting. This is the who and the where. Now, the greeting tells us several things about the book itself. Um, first up, this is a letter. Might, some of you might you know, just have that in your memory banks already about Colossians, but some of us are coming to this new and it's important to establish this is a letter. This is not some sort of esoteric religious document written by a kind of anomalous conglomerate to present timeless truths uh, for all of mankind for the ages. That does, of course, give timeless truths. But those truths are conveyed in the context of real life situations. There is a guy writing a group of people. And it's written by, as I said, the Apostle Paul, who is accompanied by one of his colleagues in ministry named Timothy. Timothy probably, I think, served something like a secretary, writing the letter that Paul dictated uh, to him. And we know from the rest of the letter that at the time he writes this, Paul's in jail. Now, I don't know if that strikes you at all as odd, but it certainly would have been an odd dynamic in the ancient world for your kind of religious leader and teacher to be imprisoned. That's exactly where Paul is. He's imprisoned for preaching the gospel several times in his life, we know. It's likely that this particular imprisonment is his imprisonment in Rome just a few years before his death. That's who it's from. The letter is addressed to a relatively small, fairly young church in a city called Colossae in what is now Western Turkey. Now, this small church had had a strong start. And we'll see, Paul will commend them for that strong start. But now they're facing some pressure. They're facing pressure from some new teachers who've showed up on the scene who are kind of super spiritual, persuasive, dynamic personalities. 
And these teachers are calling the Colossians to to advance in their spiritual journey beyond Christ. Now, they view Jesus as, as maybe a good starting point, but not a final destination. Yeah, thank you. You know where we're headed. And they were influencing these guys in the Colossian church to kind of adopt that mindset. To adopt all kinds of these kind of esoteric philosophies and practices to kind of take them deeper. To take them into another level of of spirituality. A a level deeper supposedly than the gospel. And so he, he says in the next chapter, Paul will tell them, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary uh, elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So Paul's writing this young church, facing these new pressures to kind of guide them through this thing. Now the greeting itself describes who they are and where they are, but the descriptions are not just bare information. Uh, These are not just like the address line on the envelope. They indicate things God is doing in their midst. First, he calls them saints. He calls the whole church saints. Contrary to the way many people use that term in our time, uh, saints are not in Scripture, people who've, extre- uh, who've achieved some sort of extraordinary level of godliness. Paul uses that term to refer to all Christians. Now, you know, be careful who you look at, but if you think about this gathered bunch, uh, and you were using those kind of super spiritual ideas to who you referred to as saints, I don't know who in here gets referred to as saints. But Paul refers to the whole church with this term that means holy ones. Saying that all of you who have trusted in Christ are made definitively, positionally, holy before God. Not because you and I have lived in a manner that warrants that description. We have not. But because Christ lived a perfectly holy life, And now through faith in him, his holiness becomes accredited to us. So Paul can look at the Colossian church knowing it's a mixed bag. People from all kinds of places and various points in their spiritual pilgrimage and call them all saints. He also calls them faithful brothers. The word translated brothers there is a Greek term. If you know anything about kind of how languages work, uh, some languages have masculine and feminine forms, terms. This Greek term is a masculine form that can mean either siblings or brothers. Many of you have a little footnote in your Bibles that indicates that. When Paul uses it here, he's referring to the people of God of the Colossian church all as his own brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's just stop and think about that. We can take that for granted as we read something like this. Through faith, he's saying they are not only holy, they're adopted. They have been adopted into this household of God. 
Saying the grace of God not only saves us by faith, it calls us into a community of faith where we live out the grace of God together. So Paul hasn't even gotten past hello. And the terms he's using to reference these people indicates some significant things about what God's doing in their midst, who they are, where they are. But after this, he he begins to recount his prayers of thankfulness. So these next few verses are thanksgiving. This is the what he sees. He says in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We commend what we value, right? We commend what we value on the playing field, in the job, in the home. What we acknowledge is positive in the lives and activities of the people around us reveals what we value. But what Paul commends in the Colossian church reveals what he values. And not only what Paul values, but as he writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he demonstrates what God values. And he commends three things. Three things that are common shorthand throughout the New Testament for mature Christian life. Faith, love, and hope. He points out their faith in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that he only notes at this point one thing about their faith, the object of it. As we said throughout our Luke series, our faith is not in a set of conceptual precepts or moral principles. Christian faith certainly includes those things. Christian faith certainly includes things we ought to believe and things we ought to do. But the object of our faith is not precepts or principles. The object of our faith is a person. We trust and serve a living God made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. And Paul acknowledges right out of the gate, Colossians, I see in you faith in Christ. Friends, all the things, let me just say right now that Paul points out in the lives of the Colossians, absolutely, I would want to commend in the life of this church. No doubt there's a persistent sincerity of faith in Christ Jesus among you in this congregation. But like the Colossians, I think there can be things that come along that um, tempt us. Uh, We need to be aware of the warning signs periodically. And for the Colossians, there was a temptation not to sort of abandon Christ altogether, but for them to put their faith in people in addition to Christ. We'll see that as we go through this 
letter that they were tempted to put their faith in Jesus plus some really gifted people. To put their faith in Jesus plus the things they could only learn from these sort of spiritual gurus and teachers and prophets and practitioners who captivated their attention. And like the Colossians, if we're not careful, we can easily let the the teachings and the perspectives and the, the counsel even and the input and the guidance of these kind of gurus in our day, people who very well may be very solid, foundational uh, teachers, helpful guides. Friends, isn't it true that all of those guides, other than Christ and his word, will inevitably fail us? This is true of every human being. Each one of us falls short of the glory of God in all kinds of ways. Each one of us, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, no matter how much you know about the Bible, will at some point fail to live up to the standard that God presents for us. This is why it's all the more important that our faith is ultimately rooted in Christ and nobody else. I got another report this week that seems like I get about once a year or so now of another Christian leader who was revealed to be morally disqualified from ministry. Now, I want to say there are far more pastors out there like Robin Boisvert than there are guys like that. People who've been walking with the Lord and loving Jesus and loving the church and serving the church and loving their wives and walking with their families for decades. But we don't write blog posts and send tweets and Instagram posts about that. What gets all the attention is the disappointments. And that's understandable. And it's grievous when it happens. But we need to understand that is not new. It's been going on since the pages of the New Testament. This is something the church has always had to wrestle with. And this is one of the reasons why Paul in Colossians is going to tell people over and over and over again, Jesus is better. Keep your eyes fixed. Keep your anchor on the faith in Christ. Next, he points out their love. Their love for all the saints. Jesus tells his disciples that the distinctive quality about them that would indicate to others that they were the followers of Jesus would be their love for each other. That the overflow of faith in Christ will necessarily be love for his people. That this is just sort of the fruit that springs from the heart and life of somebody who's following Jesus is that I will love the people he loves. I think it's noteworthy that as he commends them in this, he commends them for their love for all the saints, not some of the saints. (laughs) Man, aren't we tempted sometimes to love some of the saints and not all of the saints? You love the saints who don't vote like you? I know I'm meddling now. November's right around the corner. This is gonna get tested big time. You love the saints who don't vote like you? You love the saints who aren't passionate about the same things you're passionate about? You love the saints who have nothing to offer you. 
Paul commends their love for all the saints. He also commends them for their hope. And he says, their hope that is laid up for you in heaven. This is a really interesting way of talking about hope. Uh, Paul here is using hope not to refer to kind of the state of longing, the state of anticipating something. Like when we say, oh, I hope something happens. Hope here refers to the thing anticipated. He says, the hope laid up for you in heaven. So it's less uh, like a birthday wish, like I hope I get something and I'm not sure if I do. It's more like a savings account. Uh, It's not something you hope will happen. It's something you can see is there but won't benefit from until later. Confidence in what's coming later fuels their faith in Christ and love for people now. That's what Paul says is the connection between Hope, that it's the quality that drives the other two. That the Colossians have a confidence in what Peter describes as a coming inheritance in heaven waiting for you that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Way, 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 way better than your 401k is laid up for you in heaven. Paul says they have a hope in that And therefore, they have faith and love in the present. According to Paul, the way to live your best life now is by putting your best hope in later. If you expect all the best things to happen in the here and now as a result of following Jesus, you are going to be disappointed. But if you have confidence in what's to come, it will radically transform the way you live the here and now. Hope in heaven drives faith and love. Now, that's what Paul sees. When he gets asked, what do you see God doing in the Colossian church? That's what he says. Now, you got to ask the question, how'd they do it? Man, like this church gets an A plus from the Apostle Paul. It gets recorded in Scripture so that every Christian for the rest of time knows how great the Colossians were. How'd they do it? How do we become that kind of church so that we get that kind of grade? What's the strategy? Well, Paul reflects now on that question. Paul kind of lifts the hood of the Colossian church and shows what's underneath to surface what's driving their progress. And here's what he says. He says, the way this church has grown Listen, in both numbers, that's multiplication, and in maturity, that's the fruit of faith, love, and hope, is by the power of the gospel. Let me show you. Verse 6. The gospel, he says, has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. As It also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul makes reference here to what we call the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1.28, God calls Adam and Eve to bear fruit 
and multiply and fill the earth. Now, Paul writes to the Colossians and says, As you have understood and received the gospel and bear the fruit of the gospel, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. The mandate given to Adam and Eve in the garden is being experienced in new covenant fulfillment as the gospel moves forward in and through the Colossian church and as it does to this day. Bearing fruit and multiplying is no longer just about having children. Bearing fruit and multiplying is more than that because now under the new covenant, joining this people of God is no longer centered on your birth into a particular family that is part of a particular nation. Under the old covenant, the nation of Israel. Now, people become part of the people of God through faith in the true and greater Adam. Through faith in the true and greater Israel in the only begotten Son, Jesus. And as the message of that Jesus spreads, it is alive and bearing fruit and multiplying in the whole world. And now, just make this connection. You and I are sitting here in Gaithersburg, Maryland in 2024 because we are part of an unbroken vine of gospel proclamation And it's the same vine that was growing in the Colossian church 2,000 years ago. Because the way this vine grows, that's what he gets into next, from one person and one place to the next, is when one person shares it with another person in another place and then the next. Here's what he says in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Several years before this, Paul had spent some considerable time in the city of Ephesus. It's about 100 miles west of the Colossians. And during his ministry in Ephesus, a man from Colossae heard the gospel there in Ephesus, from Paul. And he became a disciple of Christ. And that man was Epaphras. And Epaphras, after hearing the gospel from Paul and being discipled in the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, went back to his hometown and he started sharing the faith there. And it appears, based on what we know of Epaphras from the rest of the New Testament, that he was foundational in establishing three churches in Asia Minor, what is now Western Turkey. The gospel progressed from Paul in Ephesus to the Colossians because one man heard it, was transformed by it, and shared it with others. And friends, there is nothing new about the strategy today. The way the gospel grows and bears fruit in the lives of people is when normal people like me and you receive it, understand it, apply it, and speak it to others. That's how the gospel grows. That's how the gospel will grow in this church. So let's take a minute and finish where we started. Let me ask you the question, what is God doing 
in your life. Now, objectively, what is present in your heart? Here's another way to think about it. What's present in your heart and life right now that simply would not be there apart from the work of God in your life through the gospel? What is he doing in the lives of the people around you? Where are things happening in their lives that would not be happening apart from Christ in his gospel? Where do you see sincere faith in Jesus? Where do you see love for God's people? Where do you see hope in heaven? I want to encourage you to take time this week to think about those things. And then ask yourself, what has God done to bring those things about? What people and circumstances has God used to instill the gospel in your heart and life? What people has God used to help you develop faith and love and hope? Now, I don't often give Sunday sermon homework, but I'm going to give some Sunday sermon homework this week. I want you to think about those questions, and then I want you to do two things. And it's the two things Paul did. I want you to thank God and tell them. As you think about what God has done in your life and who he did it through, and as you think about other people and what God's doing in their life and how he used others in them, I want you to thank God for what he's done, and I want you to tell the people around you what you see God doing in them. I think that's Paul's aim in this part of Colossians, is that we become freshly aware of what God is doing in us objectively and how he's using the people who proclaim the gospel to do it in us. So that we would leave here with, with fresh thanksgiving to God, hearts of praise and thankfulness for what he's done and what he's going to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that but by your grace, none of us would be here. But we recognize that through the power of the gospel as proclaimed by individuals to us, you have transformed our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with fresh thankfulness for what you've done. Be worshiped this week as all of us throughout this church are giving praise to you for what you've done. And God, I pray that you would encourage people who are maybe struggling to see the flicker of light of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that they would see it afresh this week. And that as they see it and give you thanks for it, that you would gently blow on that flame and grow it in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.